Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. And sustainability is complex. One decision may make sense for being more sustainable in one way versus maybe you make a different decision and it can be more sustainable in another. And so it, it's kind of up to the brand and the consumer to figure out what the best path is for each of those things. But it is nice to see that consumers are becoming more and more educated over time. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast. Can't believe it's the last Friday in September, getting into fall. And it also means that we have another episode of Slow Living Through the Seasons coming up next week, which is super exciting and feels like we just launched this podcast and we already have the third episode, which really sounds crazy, but that doesn't feel very slow to me. <laughs> but it is. It's just once a month, Slow Living Through the Seasons. And what are we talking about next week, Mom, on that episode? Yeah, as usual, we'll be taking a look at the month from the slow living perspective. We'll be taking a look at Halloween, its origins and its significance, and how we can experience what's special about this season without being swamped by all the commercial noise around it 
and what's going on in the October garden, uh, planting by the signs, of course, and a couple of shares from the seasonal kitchen. So exciting. Can't wait to hear it. And also on that note, the Almanac is open for fall enrollment. So if you are looking to join a community of Good Dirt podcast listeners and others interested in slow and sustainable living, the Almanac is very joinable. We had it closed to enrollment over the summer, but is now open. All the information for joining is on the website. There are two tiers. The lower tier is the Good Dirt Supporter membership, which simply you get access to a forum specifically for the podcast and the podcast episodes. We can carry on the discussion there. You will have access to upcoming bonus content. We're working on getting some of that together. And then the Almanac, which is sort of a tier above, you have access to our quarterly book clubs, our monthly gatherings of members, our monthly Skillshare sessions. We get together as a community and someone from the community will share a skill or a passion that they have with others. And there's just a lot more sort of discussions going on there. There's also a recording archive of all workshops and past talks and gatherings that we've had on the Almanac, on the higher tier. So all this information is on the website, multiple ways to get involved with Lady Farmer and the community. And We truly could not do this without your support. So even if you think you might not utilize the platform, that monthly pledge of support really helps us keep the show going, which we want to continue to do as long as we can. So yeah, we want to keep the good dirt going so we can talk about the good dirt, which we do a lot on here, obviously. And we also love to talk to individuals and companies who are out there doing their best to nurture and protect the planet so that our good dirt can thrive and do what it does which is to feed and support all life. And so that brings us to today's episode, where we explore yet another way of protecting our good dirt, and that is to become more aware of the ingredients in the products you're using, in particular, your cleaning products, cleaning up your cleaning, so to speak, and understanding the impact of what you're using and what goes down the drain. Today, we're talking to David Watkins. He's the co-founder and CEO of Dirty Labs, which is a cleaning innovations lab on a mission to create the future of cleaning. Dirty Labs was founded to create a sustainable bio-based approach to cleaning that is rooted in science and aligned with nature without using petrochemicals, harsh synthetics, potential carcinogens, irritants, toxins, or any endocrine disruptors. At Dirty Labs, they believe that there is a smarter way to clean without these chemicals. David is an award-winning product designer and entrepreneur. He spent his career designing, developing, and manufacturing consumer products for Google, Jawbone, Skull Candy, and Encase. It was during this time that he witnessed the excessive amount of manufacturing waste being produced for consumer products. As an avid climber and outdoor enthusiast, David brings his passion for nature and sustainability into his design process. In this conversation, we learn how he has created innovative solutions to reduce waste and environmental impact and how Dirty Labs as a company is really making a change for the better. So here's David Watkins of Dirty Labs. I'm David Watkins. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Dirty Labs. We're a cleaning products innovations lab, and we're on a mission to effectively eliminate our reliance on petrochemicals and cleaning products. Well, how did you get there? Yeah, sure. Going way back to background, I'm Taiwanese with a little bit of Dutch sprinkled in there. 
And I grew up in a pretty international household. So I grew up between California, Tokyo, and Hong Kong. Was adopted within the family. You know, the, the family is fairly complicated in that regard. But as far as career-wise, I've worked in consumer products for pretty much all of my career. I was, I'd say, quite attracted by design and product development and manufacturing and, and creating things. I think I arrived at this career path sort of unintentionally in the beginning. Originally, I was planning on being a lawyer, and there were a number of things that kind of took me away from that path. I think one was like in school, I didn't want to bill hours for a living. And little did I know till later, you find out just exactly how much uh, lawyers can bill for hours. And then I also really liked creating things. So I think for most of my adult life, I really liked to cook. And so I think that just kind of demonstrated that making things was a passion of mine. And then kind of learned about product design and product development, kind of like found my way in there. So I spent most of my career in consumer products. So some of it was in like sporting, like in the golf industry, making like bags and head covers and that sort of thing to the outdoor industry. So that continued to be bags and things like that. Consumer electronics is probably where I spent the most time. And so worked in the design and development of consumer electronics. And, and part of maybe what inspired my path to Dirty Labs was really that I had lived and worked in China for about seven years. And I think when you start manufacturing things on a large scale, it's, it's pretty rewarding to see people use the products that you're working on, which is, which is a cool thing. But also when you look at that industry, you're creating products that effectively go to landfill. When you see the products you're working on being built at that scale, and every year you're kind of redesigning and trying to resell that product to the same people, you really see kind of like this life cycle of product. I mean, it's not particularly pretty, especially when you make mistakes and you know a product run gets scrapped or something like that, and you just wonder where it all goes, right? And so for me, one point sort of later on after living in China, I really wanted to continue to work on products like physical goods, but I also wanted to work on things that were better solutions to things that people actually needed versus trying to sell a new gadget or a toy or something, right, to use for a very short period of time versus like what we're doing today. We're trying to create products that are a better alternative to things that people just kind of need in their daily lives. So cool. How was the Dirty Labs beginning and your role in that? So I was introduced to my co-founder, Dr. Pete He, who's like this incredibly talented chemist through a, a, a founder of a different company. I was mentoring over at a accelerator program in New York City at the time and had spent some time getting to know the CEO and founder of, of another startup. He knew that I was looking to get into a business that was more sustainable. And also, I think from Pete's perspective, like, so my background is definitely not in the cleaning product space or the chemical space or anything like that. But Pete had, that's the world that he comes from. And he's worked on a number of different things, everything from like, he was like the first chemist to bring a odor neutralizing, like a Febreze type product to market. He's worked on a number of different categories in household cleaning to personal care for like a brand like Tatcha. But he's worked for like Henkel, Dial Corporation, Unilever. So, so big chemical effectively. His role at those places was in research and development and also in heading up sustainability for, for some of these things. So he was the founding chairman of the Sustainability Consortium, which is a pretty big organization. And so he had a lot of background in sustainability. If you work in R&D and sustainability at some of these bigger chemical 
companies, I think oftentimes your ideas may get overlooked, you know, in favor of, you know, sort of protecting the bottom line, so to speak. And so I think that his path to Dirty Labs was somewhat similar in that he wasn't particularly satisfied with, with what he was doing sort of with his day-to-day job. And so the two of us met, hit it off. We started talking about what we could work on. And I'd say we arrived at laundry detergent as the starting point for kind of a number of reasons. I'd say that laundry is certainly like the largest home cleaning category out there. And we started looking at the idea of like wastewater. And while I think that if you look at home cleaning products, yes, you know, many brands are trying to tackle the single use plastics problem. And I think that it's pretty clear that there's, you know, certainly like better choices and materials that people can make and that sort of thing. But I think there's probably like less thought that goes into what goes down the drain with the actual product itself. You stick your clothes in a washing machine, you don't really add the water yourself, it kind of handles it, you know, on its own. And whatever you're using to clean the clothes with kind of just runs down. It's kind of not visible to you. See it. Yeah, you don't have to like, like you take the trash out. So you see the plastic that you're using or you see the Swiffer things you're throwing away or whatever. But that's an interesting point. I haven't thought about it like that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of something that, yeah, you just don't really interact with very much, right? So whatever things that kind of run down the drain in the kitchen sink or the shower, you're not thinking about too much or you, you kind of assume that maybe that water is getting treated somewhere and therefore is, it's all good. But that was a big piece of why we wanted to start that, like start from laundry detergent. Also, I think that because we put the science first and the innovation and performance, that it was a category that was fairly difficult to innovate in, right? There's many different like washing conditions for things. You're washing lots of different types of materials. And, you know, we saw a lot of room for innovation in the category. And that's kind of why we started there. You have a lot of product samples. And, you know, if I was working on speakers or headphones or something, you know, a lot of friends would be like, oh, can you, you know, get me a sample of this or that? And it's kind of fun, but I've actually enjoyed the cleaning space even more because I actually really like creating a a living space for myself, whether it's been like an apartment in New York or a house here in Portland. And it's been fun to be able to use the products I work on like every day, (laughs) like whether that's the dishwashing detergent or, you know, when I wash my clothes or what have you, but interacting with it and having it be something that my friends all use is a nice thing for sure. And that they need to use. There's not really a way around washing our clothes. (laughs) So we have to do it anyways. That's so fun. So when it comes to companies and product makers that claim to be changing things for the better, their product is better, cleaner, more environmentally friendly, all those things, what's different about Dirty Labs? I would start with sort of how we're made up as a company, right? And so we're, we're a fairly small team. We're 11 people. Three of us are chemists. And I think for a company at our stage and size, it's fairly unique to have any chemists on board a lot of times, let alone three, and three really like high caliber chemists. And so I would say that that's probably maybe the biggest defining feature of the company is that, you know, not only do we have very high product standards and and how we formulate around things, but having that expertise in-house allows us to do things that would be very different than taking a manufacturer's formulation and then tweaking it a little bit, right? So we're coming to market with a product that we've designed and been very intentional about formulating. And we don't own the factories that we produce product in, but we're very specific about the process, the conditions, the ingredients, and, and all of that. So that, that's a big one for us. That's really interesting. 
because when you introduce Dirty Labs on the website and in the literature, you're a cleaning innovations lab. You're not like a cleaning product company. Yeah, or a cleaning products brand or something, right? right? Yeah. So while we absolutely create consumer products and we brand them, I think we put a lot of focus on the formulation aspect. And what's interesting about maybe the way we're set up as well is because, you know, a lot of the team doesn't come from the cleaning products or chemical space. And so because of that, the way we think about how we, you know, create new products, we have a lot of flexibility in terms of, you know, how we design things, right? And so being able to formulate products that, you know, taking a powder and a liquid formulation, making them work really, really well together is something that we thought of that, you know, maybe doesn't really exist the same way amongst many other products in the space. And so we have the opportunity, depending on like what the product that we're making is to be really flexible or sort of creative in terms of like what that form factor or, you know, sort of what form that product takes. So maybe we'll use like dilutables or maybe we'll use, you know, a number of different things or just highly concentrated products. But there's a pretty wide range of opportunities for us there. What's interesting about what you're saying is I haven't thought about when I think about the products that I use every day, especially in cleaning daily consumables in the house. Through this work and the podcast and working with brands and having a brand of my own, I understand that a lot of these things are big multinational corporations and a lot of it is the same stuff, packaged different, different labels. And a lot of this game, I'm doing air quotes of like selling, you know, consumer products is branding and using buzzwords and all of that. And so there's like certain brands that I do gravitate more towards because they have like nicer looking labels or they use the right words. But I had never really thought about until coming across you guys, the idea that there is like an actual team of people working on specifically on that product. And exactly your point, having chemists in-house and you don't actually own the factories. You're not this huge multinational vertically integrated machine. You really are just sort of like product first, which is really exciting. So I'm really glad to know that. And that's kind of a more like layered idea. You know, I think with some of the the larger chemical companies, like obviously they take advantage of scale, right? And they typically, you know, maybe they own many parts, if not all of their supply chain, right? In terms of surfactant plants and all of that. And, you know, that I think benefits the consumer in that, you know, maybe they're able to keep costs down because of that. But also, you know, I think it does inhibit innovation to some degree, because if you're trying to design something and it's widely outside of your supply chain, that you may be much less incentivized to go down that route. Whereas we do have that flexibility, which is nice. And and I think that it's helped us a lot, especially because we tend to take a different approach in each of the sort of product categories that we work in. So the idea of green products, greenhouse, household products, cleaning products, personal care products, a whole lot of things that are trying to jump on the sustainability bandwagon and the green campaign, be healthier, be more environmentally friendly until a lot of it becomes, you know, what we've come to call greenwashing. People use the right words, buzzwords that people recognize and they'll buy it based on that rather than like going a little deeper and finding out what that really means for that particular product. So what is it you guys are doing in the green space that's really different from other cleaning brands that claim to be more sustainable? Like for instance, I have an example. The little pods have been such a thing for a while. Yeah. Don't use the big plastic jug. Use the little pods that you can just throw in and then they go away. So 
Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I would say that there is a whole lot of greenwashing out there. Like, I think it's very much on people's minds. And as a whole, I would say that it's nice that it's top of mind for consumers these days. Like, so I think the fact that the conditions are even right for greenwashing to work is maybe a, a step in the right direction. But I think that also it's, it, it can be frustrating, right? When you see environmental or sort of sustainability claims made by certain brands and you know that these things are kind of misleading, right? Or there's like quite a bit of an omission, like omission of certain parts of the truth there. As a brand that's certainly we're not perfect. We tend to make the most sensible decisions we can in terms of formulation and packaging. It can be difficult to get your message out because I think many consumers are like, ah, you know, I've heard that before and it's pretty hard to differentiate which product is greener. And sustainability is complex, right? So one decision may make sense for being more sustainable in one way versus maybe you make a different decision and it can be more sustainable in another. And so it's kind of up to the brand and the consumer to figure out what the best path is for each of those things. But it is nice to see that consumers are becoming more and more educated over time. I'll give you an example. Like I think one would be like laundry sheets. We don't particularly care for pods because of the polyvinyl alcohol, which is when it breaks down and dissolves in the water is effectively like micro or nanoplastics that you're kind of flushing down the drain. If you look at laundry sheets, the substrate that those sheets are formulated on or impregnated onto, it's the same, effectively the same material as what's on a pot because it's dissolving as well. While it benefits from not having liquid, right, because it's a dry sheet and you can package it in a cardboard box and claim that there's no single-use plastics, you know, in the packaging, the product itself actually contains microplastics. And so those kind of things get a little misleading and a little frustrating, right? Because I think people are like, hey, I'm not shipping around heavy bottles of liquid around. I'm making a more environmentally friendly choice. But in effect, you're just dissolving microplastics down the drain, which is, I'm sure, not many consumers' intent. But many are just not informed as to, like, you know, what the substrate is for that, you know, detergent choice. Yeah, and you all have done such a great job with your packaging. I love the product, but I was really impressed You know, when they came. It's like, wow, you know, it really is plastic-free. The only thing even resembling plastic is the little silicone dispenser that, you know, you can use over and over and over again. And so I would love to hear about some of the challenges in that because I know I've talked to a lot of companies, like uh, there are a lot of products that I would probably like to use, or I, I believe the product is good. I don't choose them because of the packaging. And I've been known to make phone calls and talk to companies and talk to representatives and say, you know, yeah, I would buy your product, but I just really don't like that this comes in a throwaway plastic thing. And lots of times you'll get the response, oh, well, we're working on that. You know, or that's a goal by 2030 or whatever. And you go, okay, that's good. At least they're even thinking about it. But you've done it. And I want to hear about some of the challenges of that. And I'm sure that's just not an easy path, but you're determined to do it and you've done it. I think for us, you know, it kind of goes back to the original formulation of the laundry detergent. Because when we launched the brand, we had a free and clear formulation of our laundry detergent, as well as like the signature scented one. When my co-founder and Pete and I were talking about the original formulation, I think one of the challenges that we were thinking about was the idea of perceived value. Because you can go to 
the grocery store and buy a humongous jug of laundry detergent. And it seems like a great value. Whereas for our product, we believed in this idea of getting it as concentrated as possible to make shipping more efficient and, and all of that. And, and certainly like the packaging requirements for it more efficient. So we have the equivalent of something that's about like a 11x concentrated laundry detergent versus I think the average laundry detergent on shelf look like the industry term for it would be like where there are 2x, you know, concentrated laundry detergent. You know, if you look back at like laundry detergent innovations, there's been some stuff that's come along in terms of formulations and that sort of thing. But it took many, many years to get from sort of original laundry detergent to this 2x form. And so we've taken that to an 11x. One of the reasons why we arrived at that place was, you know, number one, it was, you know, something that where it doesn't get too ridiculous to where you can't measure it out accurately, but also that it was concentrated enough to be able to give us some options in terms of how we packaged it. And so when we first launched the product, we had 75 load bottles that would be quite a bit smaller than a, than a, typical wine bottle, and it would hold 75 loads. And if you compared that to sort of the conventional alternative, that would be quite a large jug of, of laundry detergent. But that allowed us to use aluminum as the form factor for the bottle. And, and we like aluminum because it's infinitely recyclable. And I like the shelf appeal of it or like the feel in hand. And, and maybe it comes from also like living in smaller apartments in New York City where space matters, right? And so having a concentrated product is a benefit. But that was kind of the start for how we ended up with sort of a bottle for laundry detergent, why we picked aluminum. And in the beginning, we also understood that it would be important to teach the consumer, teach the customer how much to use. And I think typically, maybe if you were the person in the household that purchased the product, you might understand that, okay, I'm paying for 75 loads of laundry detergent, I need to use the appropriate amount, but maybe you're somebody else in the household that just sees it and you know they're going to have to understand how much to use. And so we actually had a, a plastic cap and spout in the beginning on that bottle to kind of, it was like a miniaturized typical laundry cap for this thing. And while you know we were reducing single-use plastics on the bottle by a really significant amount. That was something that we didn't get right or get perfect off the bat. And that's how we kind of ended up with coming up with the uh, reusable silicone beaker as the dosing device, because we still needed something to teach somebody how much to use. But, you know, eliminating the single use plastics was something that was important to us. And it didn't happen right away, right? Like it took us probably nine or 10 months after launching, the, you know, those first products to switch over into a different form factor. So speaking of that, talk to us a little bit about silicone and why that's a better choice. For us, one of the reasons why we like silicone, well, number one, is it's, it's very durable as a product. I would say that it doesn't leave the same, it, we don't have the same microplastics issue that we have with other sort of injectable or compression molded plastics. And there are challenges with it, of course, in that it's not very easily recyclable, but it's not exactly as damaging to the environment as, as some of these other plastics are. And it's pretty infinitely reusable. It is. Is it my understanding that it doesn't break down like a little plastic measuring cup might be, you know, it's going to get chipped and... Yeah, I think durability is really high. There's actually some interesting uses for it too. So typically what we're trying to do is get a consumer like one, maybe two silicone beakers, depending on how they're using them, right? But then moving them into the refill form factor. So they're not accumulating a whole bunch of these things. But for customers that do have extras, 
Silicone actually, like the beakers actually work pretty well as a static reducer in the dryer. So if you have some extras, you can kind of leave them in your dryer and it'll reduce static in there as well. Oh, that's cool. I didn't realize that. You can order your next batch and not get right. the beaker. So if you switch to our 80 load bottle, it does not come with one. And before we get too far off of what you just said with the concentration, you said consumers need to be educated. I'm like realizing that I never even thought about, like, I guess I noticed that it was a smaller bottle and a smaller beaker and, and I like, you know, followed the line. So of course I was putting less in, but it wasn't until you said that, that I realized, oh yeah, just cause something looks like it's a big bottle with like a big cup and you're pouring like a whole cup of detergent in it. I'm not thinking of, and I consider myself a pretty informed consumer. I'm not thinking about the concentration of something. I'm just kind of blindly following directions and like, I like the way it smells. I know it's better for the environment. So I'm not really not questioning it, but it's interesting to point out. I'm going to think about that in general now for a lot of other things, kind of like how they've across the board been making like like they've been making boxes smaller, but keeping the price the same kind of thing, you know, like what are you getting for the price kind of concentration? So yeah, there's lots of tricks there, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think early on as we were kind of designing the product and talked to somebody who was a product manager at one of the big chemical companies, and I won't name which one, but if you can imagine like, you know, as this product manager, like one of his things that he did was he increased the size of the cap on the laundry detergent bottle. I think they took the size of the cap up like by 15% or something like that. And while the recommended dose line for, you know, whatever, let's say a medium wash load remained the same, but the, the cap got bigger. And so consumers just started using more laundry detergent. And so it took like, you know, gross margins up by or gross profits up by like, you know, 5% or something like by doing so. And so for us, we're trying to actually convince consumers that they can use less. You said perceived value. So you need to show that your product is more valuable and worth more. It's fascinating. Also, I'd like to point out that those big plastic jugs are mostly water. Right, because they're less concentrated. Yeah. So people, you know, we're talking about perceived value and they go, oh, look, I get this big thing for this great price, or I could get this little box of powder or whatever. So it's really important that people understand that you're buying a big old plastic thing that's you know going to end up in the landfill forever. And the cap is now bigger. This is literally designed to make you use more, so you buy more. You buy more. So that's just important for consumers to understand. Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> lots of things that we do, right? So I think designing the product to be very effective at the, lo- like at the measurements we're recommending is one piece of that we tend to provide multiple benefits as well. And so if you've got a detergent that is very effective at you know, removing stains and cleaning clothes, but also is gentler on your clothes at the same time, that maybe you're providing some additional value in you know, extending the life of those clothes. And because we work very well in cold water, maybe there's some energy savings that you're able to take advantage of as well. We have some natural fabric softening characteristics built into the formula based on the way the enzymes work in there. We we tend to kind of recommend that people don't use fabric softeners, but you're kind of getting some of the benefits of maybe what a fabric softener would provide as part of the formula as well. And so you're providing a number of different benefits to kind of add up to a, a full package. Right. And you bring up a good point about like consumer priority. For example, the more people 
are choosing maybe natural fibers over, you know, polyesters and synthetics. And the more they're going to prioritize, you know, laundry detergents that are general, that are more gentle on the fabrics. And so that these nicer clothing items or clothing items that are intended to last longer can last longer and not be like, you know, just degenerated through harsh chemicals. I think that's a, a shift, a gradual shift in consumer goals that is beginning to catch on a little more. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. What is Dirty Labs? greatest challenge in communicating perceived value to the consumer and how kind of has that job for you changed as you know consumer behavior has shifted recently towards more sustainable products but what is still something that's a challenge for you i would say that there's definitely more mass consciousness around climate change and a desire to make more intentional decisions for consumers to do their part, right, with their buying decisions. You know, you can see it today where people are looking to reduce plastic consumption in their lives and that sort of thing. For us, maybe the biggest challenge is trying to cut through the noise of like the greenwashing you mentioned. And so we kind of have to pick our messages. And so I think for us, it's like solving a problem for people, right? So not only is it being a sustainable choice, because you can probably design something that is pretty sustainable as a cleaning solution pretty easily. But then if you want it to be clean and also very effective, then that's where the challenge lies, right? And so for us, like leading with the performance, that's where we feel like we're able to differentiate. So we, we kind of lead with performance because I think that's what will keep people coming back to us. We are taking advantage of you know our investment into the chemistry and the science and starting there. So when was Dirty Labs founded. How many years has it been in existence? We've been available to the public since the beginning of 2021. And we piloted it at the end of 2020. So we've been around for a little over three years now. Pete and I have been working on it a little bit, you know, prior to that, of course. 
Is, is that enough time to get a glimpse of any, any kind of meaningful growth in people's interest in this kind of thing? Or are you still in the beginning stages of determining who your audience is and what they want? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's been really encouraging since the start. Like, I think that we've seen consistent growth year over year now, sevenfold from the first year to the second year. End of this year, we'll probably have replaced about 30 million loads of petrochemical laundry detergent. So it's, it's nice to see some scale that gets applied to what you're working on. So for the many of us that aren't chemists, what is it that you're replacing in, say, typical laundry detergent that takes you away from petrochemicals? Yes. I would say, I guess, to describe how a typical laundry detergent works, they are typically surfactant-driven cleaners. And so those surfactants have an oil component to them. And so typically with like maybe many of the conventional brands, that oil source comes from petrochemicals. And if you look at some other products that have been released out in market, you know, it is possible to replace the oil source with a plant-based source of oil to create those surfactants. From what we found though, is that the end molecule, the, the end result is very similar regardless of where the, the oil component of a surfactant molecule comes from. And so some of the byproducts can be similar, right? And so having something that's synthetic surfactant driven by almost by design, you're, you're getting some nasty sort of byproduct chemicals as a result of building product that way. Whereas Dirty Labs' formulations were, were really enzyme driven for our detergents. What we found is that like enzymes in laundry detergents isn't it's not a new thing, right? Like typically in a premium laundry detergent, you'll have some enzymes in there as a performance additive or performance booster. But by kind of changing the focus of how we formulate the detergent and using sugar-based surfactants to go along with that, we're getting effectively much friendlier ingredients to play together much nicer and get to that performance, right? Where we're, you know, meeting or exceeding the conventional alternative in terms of performance. But because it's all bio-based materials, the way we kind of clean products is more how nature would clean something. And that also means that, you know, those those chemicals or the detergent breaks down after it's been used and, and readily biodegrades afterwards. That's fascinating. Yes. So are there other ingredients that you have taken out that you would normally find in a, a conventional laundry detergent? that you're confident make your product more environmentally friendly? As a whole, there's quite a few. You know, I think that number one, we're California Prop 65 chemical of concern-free, which is pretty unusual for the laundry space. Explain that a little bit. So we don't use any chemicals that are on the California Prop 65 chemical of concern list, which is a list of chemicals that's been identified by the state of California that has detrimental effects either on human safety or the environment. So we steer clear of those things. I'd say that, you know, the, the other thing that we are free of is we're free of EU listed fragrance allergens as well, which is another list. But, you know, we have a fairly limited palette of things that we can work with. You know, I think the chemists here at Dirty Labs are very creative in terms of how they use the ingredients that, you know, that we do. And that's kind of how we achieve the performance characteristics of our products. Do you guys have a physical lab? Yeah, we, beakers? doing beakers. Oh, yeah, we, we actually we actually have two <laughs> labs. We have one in Montana and one in Arizona. Very cool. And I heard you mention you've avoided the fragrances that are on the EU list. These fragrances that are typically allowed in the United States. I think that's interesting. Did I get that right? 
Right. And so, yeah, exactly. And so I think that the simplest approach that many companies take is that, hey, fragrances are bad. Maybe you should avoid them, which is, you know, why we have a free and clear product. I think that there's some people that just prefer no fragrance at all because they view it as unnecessary. In the laundry space, I think people do associate clean with a scent, right? Like, you know, they, they smell something, you know, whether that's, you know, they grew up with Tide or whatever, and they associate that smell with being clean. And so for us, we had a choice when it came to scent, right? And so I think a lot of companies have taken the approach of, okay, instead of using synthetic fragrances, we're going to use only essential oils to be that scent. But, you know, I think in concentrated products and, you know, in cleaning products in general, essential oils can contain quite a few allergens, right? Because you can imagine you're, you're, you're taking sort of concentrated plant matter or something, and that can contain a pretty high percentage of, of fragrance allergens. And so for us, while we are mostly natural, we do use some very safe synthetics in, in our sense, but with the purpose of it being that, you know, we can be much safer in terms of like not being a source of allergens. Yeah. I just think it's super interesting for the consumer to know that there are a lot of things that are not used in other countries that are banned or against the law. And I think that's kind of the thing with the California Prop 65 is like California is like the only state so far to even generate a list. Yeah. And it's starting to change. You're starting to see some shifts, right? So in New York, for example, so 1,4-Dioxane is the byproduct of a number of surfactants and it shows up in cleaning products. It also shows up in personal care things, like even in shampoos, body washes and that sort of thing. It's a forever chemical and it's showing up in the groundwater in Long Island. New York has started to regulate that. And so you're starting to see certain products being banned on shelves. So when I go into a store in New York City, some of the products that used to be there are no longer. Interesting. Is California the only state that has their list of banned ingredients? No, but I think it's probably the most robust list. And not all of them are banned per se. It's just that if you're using them, you then have to label that and inform the customer. You put it a, a watch list, I think is the term you use. This is also interesting. Yeah. So how would you say that your journey with Dirty Labs has changed you? Yeah, I think that the problems that we solve for at the company also makes me examine choices in my life as well. I think that I've been fairly intentional as a consumer to, you know, maybe this comes as a result of like city life, right? Where you don't have a lot of space, but I'm pretty conscious of the products that I'll purchase and bring into my space just because space is fairly limited. But I'm certainly more conscious of what I choose to purchase and use and how I choose to like repurpose things and that sort of thing after my journey with Dirty Labs. It's been interesting kind of living here in Portland, Oregon, where, you know, you've got four different trash bins, right? So you can see like the waste that you're creating. And I'm certainly not, you know, you hear stories of people that you know, are so good about managing their waste that they fit like a year's worth of waste into like a mason jar or something. And so I'm not that extreme as a consumer, but I'm very conscious of it. And so like the trash cans that I take out every day or like every week, sorry, tends to be recycling first and foremost. And then, and then compost is another one. And then the trash itself maybe goes out once every two to four weeks or something, just being able to manage that. And so it's nice being in a place where, you know, composting is a thing because that's certainly a big part of maybe what fills up most trash cans or most households. 
but because I'm thinking about packaging all the time and, and all of that, that certainly that affects my daily life, you know, whether it's like, oh, maybe I don't need that plastic bag at the grocery store or something. And maybe this goes beyond your work with Dirty Labs, but in general, your work in consumer products, like how has that changed you as a consumer? I think I put a lot of value and like I'll spend that little bit more money to purchase something that lasts. You know, fashion, for example, is an industry that's gotten a lot of flack for being very disposable. The laundry example for that was would be that, you know, one of the best ways to reduce the carbon footprint of a garment is effectively to just make it last longer, right? Or, or get more utility out of it. And so I think I'm probably more conscientious of, you know, what I choose to purchase. And then I'm pretty selective in terms of like, you know, figuring out which option is is best for me. Yeah, you probably know a lot more than you could even explain just like being in it. So at Lady Farmer and on the Good Dirt, we talk a lot about slow living, which leads into slow fashion and slow food. And, and that's our approach to sustainability is just slowing down in general. So what does slow living mean to you? For me, slow living probably means living in the moment more than anything, right? Being present, you know, that applies to maybe self-care and as a startup founder, sometimes that's tough. Maybe one of the things that's redeeming about it for sure is that I do love what I do for work, right? And so, you know, if if work is going to be a big part of living, then at least making that enjoyable and, and feel meaningful, like that, that's, that's important to me. But as far as like slowing that down, I think it's taking time for the people that I care about in my life and really kind of nurturing the relationships with the important people there as well. That's awesome. And do you feel like you're able to enjoy slow living, even though you're a busy startup founder? Yeah, I think so. I think I do a pretty good job of that. I may not sleep very much, but I, I make time for it for sure. Okay. So, you know, we are the Good Dirt Podcast and we talk a lot about good dirt on here. So we always like to ask our guests, what does good dirt mean to you? I'd say metaphorically, it evokes like having and maintaining the conditions to thrive and grow. Speaking to you know the products that we make and that sort of thing, the quality of soil and dirt and all of that is all connected to wastewater and, and things that we're trying to, to manage and mitigate with our products. So that's meaningful. I like to cook quite a bit, as I mentioned. And so, you know, having great produce that's grown and good good dirt um, is something I see as a value for sure. I, you know, I one of those people that takes a lot of interest in heirloom varieties of peppers or different things that, you know, are, are, are new and exciting to try. And certainly like people taking the care to work with that dirt is of value to me. And I appreciate those things. Awesome. Thank you. Is there anything else that you want to leave with the audience about the work that you're doing about Dirty Labs as a company? I think that maybe one of the things that you mentioned is that, you know, like your purchasing decisions certainly support brands like ours. We think that we're making a lot of decisions to be safer for our our customers and better and easier on the planet. And then, you know, certainly depending on, you know, what the product is, if it's laundry detergent, we're very intentional about making those products be efficient and make your clothing last longer. And there's a number of things that we may have not talked about in terms of like perform cleaning performance and, you know, making synthetics last longer as well as natural fibers. But as a company, there's things that we do well. And I think that we, we've set the bar pretty high, but also at the same time, there's plenty that we recognize that we can do better. You know, we'd love to hear any comments from 
you know, maybe your listeners that have tried the product or are interested in trying the product, like we're here for outreach and feedback anytime. Very cool. It's always nice to know that it's like a small team of real people and hear the voice, actual voice of it. So that's really nice to know. I'm like always shocked when I get any sort of customer relations, like email response or something from like a human with a name and I see the name on the website. That's like very meaningful. So <laughs> yeah, I love you having the behind the scenes familiarity with the people. So it was really, really nice meeting you today and chatting with you about Dirty Labs. Yeah. If people have questions for our team, you know, I think if it's a complex question, you know, you may get a response directly from one of our chemists. We encourage our customers to reach out or, you know, people who are interested in trying it to, to ask questions. Very cool. Very good. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining us today, David. It was a pleasure meeting you and a pleasure talking to you. And this is not even staged, but I have to go do laundry after this because mom and I are going on a trip tomorrow. <laughs> I need to do a load and I'm going to be using Dirty Labs. Love the bergamot scent one. <laughs> Perfect. Really lovely to meet you guys and thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.